0: Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental and social justice stories from Australia and around the world. This show was produced on Gunai Kurnai country in conjunction with 3CR, situated on Rondri country in Narm, Melbourne, Australia. This show is broadcast around the continent by the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Phil Evans, and I'm glad you can join me for another show. Festivals can do a lot better.
1: Dancing on crunched up pieces of plastic.
2: You're in a composting toilet. You've got some awareness of cultural transformation.
0: It's the middle of summer, and for many people, it's festival season. Whether it be music festivals, transformational festivals, art festivals, there's all sorts of ways people like to gather together in large groups and enjoy themselves and just like literally everything in the world festivals are being impacted by climate change whether it be through fire and the risk associated with it or sites being flooded in unusual weather events so today we're going to look at festivals and their impact on the environment. So we'll check in with a couple of people who like to go to festivals, like me, (laughs) and also one person involved in an organisation who is working to make them more sustainable. Sounds like a good show. That's today on Earth Matters. Festivals are like microcosms of the wider world. Larger festivals are often like small cities with marketplaces, multiple stages and districts, and all the amenities that go with that, like toilets and when you're dealing with crowds in the tens of thousands as many larger australian festivals do the footprint can be immense there are many different types of festivals for types of music or arts just as there are many different styles as in camping festivals day festivals multi-venue festivals but today we'll mainly be talking about the multi-day camping festivals like blazing swan the regional blend on nyaki nyaki Nyunga buja in western australia now in its 10th year and drawing smaller crowds in the several hundreds or Strawberry Fields, an electronic music and arts festival on Yorta Yorta Land in New South Wales, and also about a decade old, but with crowds up to 16,000. There are, of course, many other festivals that feature aspects of land care, like transplants, uh, tree planting festivals like Rootbound on Nio-Agi land in far north Queensland, or Dragon Dreaming on Wurundjeri in land near GAS ACT, but we'll save those for a future episode. Today, we'll look at transport, trash and toilets and look at how festival systems and cultural norms are influencing punters both at the festival and maybe even when they go home to the real world, too. And we'll listen to some Australian electronic musical artists, too. It is the holidays
1: after all. You're speaking to Bearish Belanda at Grey Music Australia. I'm the CEO of the org and I'm calling in from Nam.
0: Green Music Australia seeks to organise, facilitate, and inspire musicians and the broader music industry to make changes to improve the environmental performance from energy use to packaging to waste to transport. They want to lead by example and bring audiences along with them and create deep cultural
1: change. So we work with the full ecosystem from obviously artists, musicians through to music venues, festivals, record labels and, and the like to yeah, help them find ways to do less harm to the environment and ultimately start to be regenerating and trying to link them in with the climate movements so that they can speak up and use their influence. Music festivals are an important part of Australia's cultural landscape. Um, we've probably all been to one or ten. They're often held outdoors in really beautiful, pristine places.
0: And these outdoor locations are often quite remote as well. So getting people there can be a huge logistical challenge, as well as a strain on resources and the environment.
1: They need to move as many of audience members as possible onto more sustainable means, because like, transport is the largest emissions coming from most festivals.
0: Analysis of the Coachella Music Festival in the United States by Aninja kenjo larasti showed that 80% of the festival's emissions were from attendee travel, with 13% coming from energy production and a further 7 from
1: waste. And, and when I say transport, it's largely the audience transport because there's so many more of them. So get people onto public transport, get them onto shuttle buses and get them out of those cars and particularly out of planes
2: think something that festivals can do a lot better at, and some do do better than others, is making it really accessible for there to be alternative ways of getting there than just private vehicles.
0: That's Ronnie from Nam. She is a festival punter and agreed to share some of her thoughts about her experiences at different types of festivals.
2: I know a lot of them encourage carpooling or you pay extra for a car pass, which I think encourages more of that carpooling as well but you know making things like buses easier I think they would also have other benefits of you know making sure that people are safe and getting home safe rather than driving when they might be a bit
0: tired. Recently I volunteered with Green Music Australia at Strawberry Fields Festival held on Yoda Yorta Country near Tocamore, New South Wales. It's a three-day event that sees international and local artists play on a multitude of stages. There's installation arts, a variety of food stalls, markets and a plethora of workshops to help people find those transformative moments. One of the initiatives I saw at Strawberry Fields was the Carless Camping. It was literally the best campsites, under the trees, closest to all the stage and amenities and all the people were bussed in via shuttle buses that left from Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, dropped in with her camping gear at the Carlos camping area and then picked up at the conclusion of the festival. This took scores of cars off the road, not only creating a safer driving environment, but having a huge impact on emissions. If you've ever been to a festival, then you'll know something about this next section. It's about toilets. The average daily waste per person is about 0.74 kilograms. Now put that over five days and times it by 16,000 people, well, let's just say it's a literal shit tonne of poop. (laughs)
1: There are typically two types of toilets at a music festival. There's the standard, I'd say, used at 80-plus percent of events, which is your port loo and the 20% that are using some kind of composting alternative. And I'd say... The composting alternative is is hands down better, as long as it's looked after appropriately and there's sufficient toilets really for the sized audience. If the sawdust is properly there and and it will it will get rid of any smell and it's vastly superior in every way, shape or form to a portal setup, and it's heaps better for the environment. Like you're actually turning our poop and everything that comes out of us into nutrient rich soil.
3: I love at uh, Meredith that they have these composting toilets, but they don't. I don't know if there is a facility that is equipped to deal with that in WA, so it's not a thing that I've ever seen here or has ever really come
0: up. That's Gwyneth Jones from Western Australia, who called in from Wajaknoongabuja in Booriloo, Perth, Western Australia. She was speaking to me about her experience as a festival punter, but also as an organiser with Blazing Swan, the regional burn in Western Australia.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's very limited by by what's easiest to do. So people are happy to be sustainable as long as it's sort of easy and accessible. But once it starts getting a bit hard, then very quickly becomes a secondary consideration. It's even limited by the infrastructure around you. I
2: think the toilets at Rainbow have always been pretty good, and also at FRL. I think the Freak Rhythm and Life they're also run by the same initially, at least run by the same people. But Both of those sites have permanent toilets built on site as well for like composting toilets, so they're able to be a lot better quality. But obviously most festivals don't tend to do that and they will tend to have portalous, which are not very nice to use as a punter either, but also just not sustainable. I think that I've always found the compost, well, not always, not 100% of the time, but very often composting toilets are, are much nicer to use. They just feel nicer. I think at least it theoretically can or at least it potentially can give that mindfulness to people to actually be a little bit more careful of what they're doing. I don't know if that's any evidence for that, but I kind of feel like at least at some maybe subconscious level, if you're in a composting toilet, you've got some awareness then of the impact that you're having and then you're more likely to potentially leave that space in a, in a better way.
0: Man and the regional burns that have spawned up all over the world, and including in Australia, places like Blazing Swan, for example, have 10 principles which guide their operations. You can jump on the Burning Man website to check them all out, but one in particular interests me, and that's Leave No Trace.
2: There's really obvious things when you're talking about Yeah, Leave No Trace, and when you're talking about, you know, rubbish.
1: And what happens in our modern society when we get hundreds, if not thousands of people together in one space is we tend to create a fair bit of mess. And that mess can look like destroyed campsites with leftover and abandoned tents, marquees, tables, chairs. It can look like single-use plastic litter on the ground in the arena when you're dancing on crunched up pieces of plastic.
3: And there's this moment where, like, they were on a dance floor and there were people kind of dropping their waist everywhere and there was just a group of people who kind of silently kind of walked in and started cleaning up around them. And that was sort of a little bit of, like, passively setting an example.
0: And no one likes moop on the dance floor.
3: Matter out of place. You know, we talk about moop in our... Um... We have like a survival guide and we encourage people to carry the moot bag and, and pick things up as they go along the theme camps are encouraged to do it and they get scored on it so at the end of the, the thing you know if you have a bad moot score it affects your placement the next year round so if you want to come back you might not get the spot that you want if you are trashy
0: single use items at festivals are a real problem and i'm not just talking about straws cups and plates but single-use camping items as well. A typical tent weighing around three and a half kilos will take about 25 kilos of CO2 to manufacture. And that same tent will have the same amount of plastic as 8,750 straws. Now that sucks. In the UK, it's been reported that up to 17% of festival waste is made up of leftovers from campsites. But festivals are trying to combat this.
1: There are situations where people, they're going to buy their expensive ticket and they are going to buy expensive gear as well because they're committed to camping, uh, that sort of outdoor experience at many times through their life, through the year and beyond. So that's one thing. But I think for a lot of people, they just really want a fun time at one festival and don't necessarily want to or need to own expensive gear. So in that instance, we're a huge proponent of any library-based system. You know, the library was invented a long time ago for books. It's a bloody brilliant system. And we want it to expand to include things like marquees, tents, et cetera. And we're really heartened that it has begun, this, this hiring of gear. So people might be familiar already with renting situations where it's kind of at the premium end. You're going on site and you're glamping, meaning you're spending big bucks to have this beautiful bell tent set up for you or something similar. Then there was a sort of a step down that a few festivals like Splendour and Strawberry and a bunch of others set up, which was this like kind of almost Scout-like camping. But again, it was pre-pitched and people would come on site and it's more economical, but it's still quite a bit more expensive than buying budget camping gear. And we're looking at exploring with festivals a really economical model, which is they hire some gear on site that's not set up and they have to pick it up on site and set it up themselves and then pack it down and bring it back to the stall and they'll get the deposit back once they return it and and that kind of model still puts a little bit of onus on the festival goer to, to do the right thing but because there's a deposit so there's value in returning it they'll get some money back it makes the system more likely to succeed Festivals, rubbish,
0: waste, toilets, we're talking about it all today on Earth Matters. I'm Phil Evans, and it's good to be with you. If you're listening to the show via spotify apple or your favorite podcasting platform then why not rate and review us help us spread the word why because the earth matters
1: absolutely committed to trying to work with the festival organizers because at that level they're able to sort of almost create a mini town a mini city and they have so much capacity to influence the behaviors that happen on site it's very rare for in a city urban setting for you to be able to say okay this year we're going to get rid of a certain kind of product like you just can't do that in most of our cities or towns But in a festival environment, it's very realistic. So you can literally say this year, no single-use plastic water bottle.
0: And this is one of those interesting moments where system change and individual behaviour change come together. So plastic water bottles. Green Music Australia have run a campaign for quite some years called BYO Bottle, meaning people to bring their own reusable water bottle and use water on-site or bring large-scale containers to continually reuse and refill the bottles. Not only does this mean that the festival is now required to introduce systems to allow this behaviour change to take place, but punters also have to make that change themselves. If everyone at a festival, say the size of Strawberry Fields or Rainbow Spirit Festival, bought one litre plastic drinking bottles and drank their recommended three litres a day, it would equate to 200 tonnes of CO2 emissions just from the plastic production alone. And of course, that's not even including transport costs of moving those plastic bottles around. So you can see these small changes have a huge multiplier effect. But sometimes festivals have the ability to make system changes that can affect everyone and can enforce cooperation with that. For example, food packaging, where stalls can be told that no single-use items will be allowed on-site. At Strawberry Fields, they had a rewash station, so everyone paid a deposit for every plate cup that they used and then were refunded it when they took it to the station to be rewashed and then to be reused. And whilst there's an element of cooperation required by the individual punters, festivals ultimately have the final say.
1: On the site that we control, no one's going to have an alternative option. They're just going to use this system. And you can trial it and you can you know make improvements year on year. And that's exactly what a bunch of festivals have been doing with our with our assistance, but also our encouragement. And so that, that's a really critical part of the journey. But then there is responsibility on the flip side with what the fans do when they arrive. You can lead a horse to water kind of thing, but you can't make him drink. And in this instant, you need fans to, particularly in camping festivals, so the ones that are you know multi-day they bring the appropriate gear they don't bring too much and they don't break it and dump it which has been a, a perennial problem it sort of I think started in the UK and it's it's blossomed globally such that we've got yeah carnage happening in certain campsites
2: I guess I just always kind of wonder about whether that's actually possible, whether they can be sustainable in the current framework that we're living under in, in a capitalist system. I don't know whether anything really is particularly sustainable in this system, so I guess music festivals fit under that. But I think that they're in a position as places of, well, potentially at least places of some kind of cultural transformation. They could be spaces where current ways we think of sustainability could progress
3: I think there's some festivals that have been built with more of a culture of sustainability, so uh, like Burns and some of the kind of uh, like festivals that are related to that burn community where they've got that sort of leave no trace principle in mind and might take a few more steps to think about the impact a bit more.
1: But I'd actually say the culture you set up when you're starting a new festival is really important. And I think a festival, like we've worked quite a lot with Strawberry Fields, and I think they have made quite significant strides on sustainability, invested more and more each year, implemented systems like reusable crockery. And so they're really seeing the fruits of their labor come to fruition. But I would say that a lot of other festivals that have set themselves up poorly, like, like an allowed in various ways a culture of kind of disrespect for the environment, that actually undoing that is a huge effort versus, say, a festival like Panama Festival in Tassie that from the outset have made it really clear that there's zero tolerance for littering, for kind of embedded a, a type of custodianship in the people that come there such that everyone's holding everyone else to account and and i think as they grow they're just going to they're going to be able to reinforce that culture over time so i'm not saying it's, it's definitely possible to undo a particular kind of culture but if anyone was listening that was looking to create a new festival i think that's the best time is to set it from the outset even if it's 200 people in a bushdorf kind of vibe you can still get the culture right at that point and grow from there <laughs> So we've created a new Camping Buddy tool, which is a website that has a packing list for people and a way of organizing your crew when you go to your favorite festival. Because often, uh, you know, we use tools like WhatsApp to say, hey, does anyone have a tent? Can you bring that tent? Blah, blah, blah. And those comm channels can get pretty lengthy and then it's hard to remember who's doing what. So I think use Camping Buddy and share it and get on it and help us make it the best tool it can be so that everyone is reducing their impact That would be a really good outcome.
0: And that was Berish Belanda wrapping up that story about festivals, trash, toilets, and of course transport as well. The number one cause of emissions for festivals. Kind of surprising. I guess I would have thought that it would have been the generators, but, you know, I guess there are a lot of people who are coming a long distances to get to these festivals. So you can see why it is that. I do know in Victoria that... Emissions from transport are the second biggest source of greenhouse gases and the fastest growing. So it all makes sense. I do want to thank my guests from today: Berish Belanda from Green Music Australia, Ronnie Backhouse from Nam. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your experiences around festivals. And also a big thanks to Gwyneth Jones for sharing your experiences from well over in Western Australia. Especially your experience setting with the Blazing Swan Festival, which I look forward to getting to over next year. Woohoo! Can't wait for that one to check out how they do burns over on Noongar Bujar. I do want to give a special plug to the volunteer program at Green Music Australia. I highly recommend if you're into festivals. To get involved in that one, I went to Strawberry Fields, as I said earlier in the show, and did some work with them. And it was great to go out and talk to a lot of the young punters who hadn't really thought about sustainability and how the things that they do at the festival will impact the environment. And I think there were some attitudes changed and some thought provoking conversations that I had with people. So it was really great to do that and do a survey process with them to. Gather information to see what people actually think about when it comes around that. So, we'll be watching the Green Music Australia and Strawberry Fields websites to see what sort of information comes out around their sustainability program, which is quite developed and worth checking out if you are interested in festivals as well. Oh, and just a word to the wise yes, I did get a ticket to the event for volunteering with them as well. Woohoo! Thanks Green Music Australia! Today we heard quite a bit of music. We heard Kane, we heard a little bit from Terrafractal. we heard some music from Tijuana Cartel, we heard from Dysemic as well, and playing underneath us right now is Susuri. All of these are Australian electronic music acts, and I recommend you go and check them out. They're mainstays at festivals Some of them for a long time now uh, that I go to. So if you are into that sort of music, then maybe I will see you on the dance floor. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Phil Evans. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr.com. At gmail.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. That's all the time we have for today, but do tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories on Earth Matters.